You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is To Stir with Love. Tales from the Prison with Rabbi Yitzchak Kolakowski. Rabbi Yitzchak, I know that you are clearly a rabbi. Not only a rabbi, but you're a rabbi who is dressed in chassidish regalia. Nobody would mistake you for anything except a rabbinical personage, especially up in Waymart, where you where you go every single day in Pennsylvania. And I know that um, you have, as you've told us before, you have rabbis that work under you, imams, other men of the cloth, other ministers, other figures that represent their religion as teachers and as guides, and they are part of that chaplaincy program. And we've talked about the compassionate work that you do and how you better the lives of the inmates. But I, I, I understand that, and, and unfortunately I know some of them as well, not that I understand it, that prisons also have other rabbis, priests, imams, and religious figures. And those are ones that are the people that are in prison there. And I know that you've had uh, probably some interesting interactions with other men, I wouldn't call them of the cloth, other men who had religious uh, a level of, 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 of being considered a religious leader, whether it's a rabbi or a priest or a minister, or that have been in the prison with, have been in the prison, and you've had to deal with them. That's correct, correct, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's something that unfortunately happens uh, more often than we'd like. Uh, even one time, of course, is too much. So it's, it's, a, it's a problem that we have to deal with sometimes and how to deal with it very gingerly, particularly when it's someone of your own faith and dealing with other rabbis. Baruch Hashem, I, didn't ha- I haven't had any rabbis in Weimar, but I did used to work in the federal prison down in Virginia when I was the rub down there. And we had we had a very Hasidic Rosh Hashiva. We had a conservative rabbi. We had other Yidin who were Yodea Sefer, you know. Uh, so, yeah, unfortunately. You know, I, I have a, I had a good friend who was uh, in, uh, in a federal prison, and uh, he wrote a beautiful Sefer when he was there. He's a Mechaber Svarim, and um, he sent me his Sefer that he wrote, uh, uh, Minametzar. That's not what he calls it, but it was a Sefer that he wrote as he writes that he wrote to be a Me'af. So many of these, uh, the rabbis that are that are in the prison, and whether it's rabbis or other sort of religious people, they um, they aren't mistreated. In fact, some of them are, are able to uh, to perhaps uh, survive and. In some way, I guess do tshuva, and also to perhaps thrive in some way, right? It's not. Um, I know you have to be gingerly with them when they inter when they related with you. Was there a sense of bitterness? Were they angry at you? Did they did they did they say who are you to deal with me? Or did you find your relationship was was okay with them? Everyone was different. Uh, certainly, the Hasidish or Shiva, I had a lot of respect for him. I kind of believe his story he maintains his innocence and i tried my best to treat him fairly you know not not to give him any favoritism just because i believe that he's innocent because that's not my call it's the judge's call but certainly that was something that uh that i dealt with 
um, I really, for me, living out of town, it was, <coughs> you know, kind of a, Excuse me. It's kind of a beacon of light to be able to interact <laughs> with a Talmud Chochem like that. Uh, but then that that one conservative rabbi who got a lot of attention, uh, he was very uncomfortable. He didn't like to come to anything Jewish. He start, I understand he started to go to Buddhist programs. And when I would try to show him a little respect and call him rabbi, he's like, oh, I'm not a rabbi anymore. I don't know if I'm Jewish anymore. That type of thing. So you have yesh v'yesh. Uh, it can de- I'm sure it can definitely be uh, very difficult to have to go through something like that and then to live with it even after you are uh, released from prison. It's the type of thing that you probably, it's very difficult to, especially uh, if, if the reason they're in for it is something that is scandalous and it's more than just uh, uh, beating somebody up who didn't uh, want to give a get or, uh, or you know, taking money and, and putting into the yeshiva, especially if it has to do with something of a sexual nature. I'm sure that's the type of thing that it would be very difficult for Rabbonim uh, and, and, and other clergymen. Uh, I know you've had uh, some Catholic priests as well, right? And, 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 they, and, 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 and what happens with them? I think they get defrocked, correct? Yeah, that, the, the, uh, we have actually in Weimar right now a Catholic priest and one of the Guards told me that he was a member of his parish, of and he was, you know, assigned to the unit where he where he's housed. Uh, he also, as I understand, maintains his innocence. I don't really know him personally, but I know uh, other people who you know have talked to him, and I've seen him around, but I never had the opportunity to really talk to him. And he kind of keeps himself, and he's quiet. But it's it's an issue for their church because they're. Uh, you know they're limited. They have we have a hard time finding priests. We did have some priests who worked for us who were defrocked without any criminal uh, reasons to be defrocked, and we were not able to maintain their services anymore. And since they're you know by us by Jews, a rabbi is a, a Jew like anybody else. He's you know one of my fellow Americans. He's not he's not elevated to any stature that anybody else doesn't have. Whatever a rabbi can do. Really, any learned Tamachochem, a lay person without smicha, could do the same thing. Technically, you know, halachically speaking, you know, a Kohen can only do certain things. And it's more like that. They're a priest. Kohanim are generally translated to English as priests. Um, there are certain services that only a priest can do, whether it's to hear confession or to consecrate the host for communion. And if we have a hard time getting a priest to come to the prison, you know, we always complain. Why can't we just use this guy? He's he, he's a priest, but we're not allowed to. Not both by the DOC standards and by their own church, they wouldn't let him even if we did allow him to do that. So, so you're saying that these men of religion—I'm not sure what to call them—clergymen, these men that you have, they're not really allowed. Although they they can't be mistreated for their because because they were clergymen, but they also—I'm getting the impression from you what you're saying—they can't really act like rabbis or like priests or like ministers when they're there. They can't decide to give an impromptu a talk or on a Sunday or to 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 to, to invoke something at grace. They they have to keep a low profile or can they in some way even in some ways although they've been shamed and been put into prison, they could still be men of God and and, and influence people there. They are allowed to, correct? In some way or well, they are they limited? It's a tightrope. They're limited, but they're also allowed to. 
it, it's, it's a very narrow path that they have to follow. So, for example, if we do not have a, a clergy person to serve a particular service, then let's say, for example, one Sunday I went in because the Protestant minister wasn't there. And so we did allow the inmates to facilitate the Protestant church service and and the whoever was supposed to preach that day, he had to have his whole sermon out in writing already. And it could be no longer than 10 minutes long. And, and it has to be approved by one by a member of the chaplaincy staff. And everything has to be very mm. scripted and organized. The same thing, the Muslims, it happens Friday. And it's an integral part of a Friday Juma prayer service is to have the khutbah, which is their sermon. It's, uh, you know, it's considered uh, a khiv. You know, if you have three Muslims in the city together, one of them has to say khutbah. They don't have to be an ordained imam in order to do that. But it's part of the religious requirements in Islam. And so, therefore, we do allow, let's say, an inmate to deliver that khutbah, but it has to be scripted, it has to be approved. And also, there's a certain level of we don't want it to be the same guy every week because then he becomes the imam, he becomes the pastor, he becomes the Indian chief, he becomes the rabbi. And that's one thing we want to avoid as much as possible because we're afraid that perhaps one inmate could exert some authority over another. And so that's the tightrope that we have to live on of allowing them to express their religious freedom and meet the religious requirements and obligations without having one inmate present himself as being superior to any other inmate. One thing they're trying to do away with is, for example, no inmate should wear any sort of robe in front of other inmates because that would show that he is kind of the pastor, he is the imam, which we don't want that to happen. And so to, to that should be democratic, but also allowing the people to um, to, to so express their religious freedom. So everybody has to wear the same, I don't know if it's orange jumpsuits, but they, they want everybody in, in, the, in the normal prison detailed clothing. There shouldn't yeah. be a sense that this guy is special. And, 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 well, we all know, again, at least I know from the prison movies that I've seen, that there's always some bull or someone who is trying to exert some sort of influence over others, right? Either because he's, you know, he, he's got some men on the outside or because he's a big tough guy. I mean, clearly, when you have people locked up, there is going to be this power, uh, to, but you don't, there's going to be a sort of power moves that these individuals are going to make. Uh, in order to gain some sort of sense of dominance, right? I mean, that's something which which you can't really stop. Uh, you put animals in a cage. You put humans in a cage. There's going to be a sense of, of hierarchy. But you just don't want it to be a religious sense of hierarchy. Well, we don't want it to be any hierarchy. It's just something that happens, and we're trying to mitigate and prevent as much as possible. But it, it happens all the time, and we and, you know, the inmates can face can face uh, consequences and, and even extra punishment if they go uh, too deep into that. But it's something that happens and we have to try our best for se- the sake of security and, and care and control to, to avoid that happening. But it happens quite often. That's one of the reasons why we go out of our way to either employ or find volunteers to serve some of these 
minority religious groups, um, mainly to avoid one inmate exerting any influence over the others. That we can say, no, this is this is your spiritual guide. This is who you're supposed to listen to. He's your chaplain, whether he's a paid chaplain or a volunteer chaplain. An inmate, you know, MX seventy five seventy six. He's he's just another inmate. Uh, right. So. I guess putting two and two together, there's probably some, you know, we talked about rabbis and priests that have been uh, uh, put into prison um, by the courts, but there's probably non-rabbis and non-priests and non-imams and non-shamans who go to or who are put into prison and then somehow get a religious persona when they're in prison, right? We all know about people having a religious conversion, Malcolm X and others, but but there's probably in, 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 in what you've been involved with people who weren't really religious figures outside of the prison, but then decided to become religious figures in the prison. That does that ever happen? It happens all the time. And it's something, again, we try to avoid. Sometimes it, it's thrust upon them and they take it graciously and they will be a legitimate, uh, a legitimate religious facilitator i've heard that it, where the son of sam is you know he can, became a born again christian and he and there was no protestant minister who serves that that particular prison in the new york state system and that he's actually pretty much the pastor of of the church there in uh, one of these prisons in upstate new york it's, uh, a, it's a lifetime position right it's probably a lifetime position for him for, for, berkowitz. for, for berkowitz it is he he was offered parole and he says he doesn't need it because he has oisa issue what does he need i don't know what he would do on the outside if he if he was ever released yeah. you know, well, you know then, again dog catcher might be a, a, a title he can still uh fulfill i know that dogs may, meant a lot to uh to dave yeah. um let me but but you okay, you're right. But you don't have. Did you have anybody in your that you got in contact with? It was sort of a Berkowitz type figure, someone who who somehow created the religious mantle. Yes, Rabbi. Absolutely. There was uh, one figure who, in our prison, who passed away not too long ago. That comes to mind strongly as such. But like I said, it sometimes is thrust upon an individual. Let's say in a Jewish community. You might, you know, Baruch Hashem, we don't have too many Jews in prison, and one guy had a bar mitzvah, and nobody else knows Aleph base. So he's like the quote-unquote rabbi, but he might not be, like, pushing himself on guys. Or sometimes you have missionaries who try to push themselves upon the Jewish community, particularly when you have a not-to-educate Jewish community. But outside of the Jewish community, uh, one fellow comes to mind in my prison. We have... In the Pennsylvania, uh, you know, state prison system, we recognize the Native American communities a little bit different than they're recognized in, let's say, in the federal system or even in New York State or in other states. In the federal system, if you're a Native American, you're a different type of inmate. You're treated by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It's a totally different creature. In Pennsylvania, we don't have any recognized Native American tribes that are recognized by the state or by the federal government. There are no uh, Indian reservations anywhere in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. There are several in New York, actually, 
people don't realize that even in Long Island there are some. And But we do have people who express themselves either by their heritage or just by their spirituality as Native Americans. And we do try to go out of our way to employ in every prison, if we can find somebody or there's there's an opening, if we don't have someone to have some kind of a chaplain to represent the Native American community and to minister to these men or in two of the prisons or three of the prisons, women. And uh, actually some of these chaplains, they travel all over the state. We have three or four chaplains who each serve maybe five or six or 10 prisons. In our prison, we have our own chief and he's the only one, our prison's the only prison where he visits. But for about Four years before he joined our team, and it was before I started working here, we hadn't had a Native American chief for, like I said, about four years. And during that time, one of the inmates kind of filled that vacuum, that void that we're trying to avoid, and created this whole persona about himself that he was pretty much the chief of that community, even though his official title was the firekeeper. Um, and someone else had an official title to be the elder of the tribe, but that elder was almost like a, you know, a a president uh, who was answered to an executive vice president, as we often have in Jewish organizations, if you know what I mean. And this firekeeper was the executive vice president. He was the one who was really in charge, and he would conduct these ceremonies. He was a very uh, charismatic figure, and he had a long, flowing white beard, and he would go out, you know, they would have their ceremonies outdoors and they would sit in a circle and they'd have a drum and they'd pass around the peace pipe. And he, he would go and put on a really good show. It was, you know, I remember coming there and seeing this for the first time and it was pretty entertaining to see this guy kind of present himself as he's the chief. He's, he's, he's the, you know, he's the Indian chief over this community of maybe 20 men. And he exerted a lot of he, he was almost kind of abusive to these other guys, but in a certain sense, I think he was somewhat sincere that he he would often tell me I'm trying to give them spirituality, uh, and he really seemed to mean it, you know. And he would uh, he would make comments sometimes about my Bieber hit because I guess that's a style. Also, he's like, Rabbi, you need to put a, a feather in that hat, then you'll then you can sit with us and. Uh, that's one of the styles I guess it's popular particularly in he, Pennsylvania he, he, tribes. He didn't uh, he didn't scold you for the killing of the animal that needed to, before that hat could be worn he didn't feel that uh, you had to relate to the animal spirit, I don't know it was a mink or a rabbit or whatever it was that uh, that somehow gave its life for you to be able to uh, to, to wear this on your head right? Anyway. Yeah, I, he, he apparently not, but it, I'm surprised he didn't. That was the one thing he didn't do. He would, he would sometimes accuse the chaplaincy cha- staff of trying to convert them to Christianity, which I, at one point, he even said that to me. I was like, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to say his name, but like, you know, I'm not converting you to Christianity. You know, that's <laughs> so. So it seems to me, just from the way you're describing it, that although this fellow was not really uh, a, a a shaman. He didn't really have that level right where he was. I mean, he was in prison. Uh, did, did you ever discover whether he was truly from the Native American people? Was he was he a Native American person even? I mean, he might have had the skin coloring 
of what you expect a Native American to be. But was he from what you understand? Well, no, he, he, he didn't have the skin color. He was the whitest guy that you would ever see. <laughs> Is that so? But as a lot of our Native Amer- – in fact, we had one guy who was actually really full-blooded Native American, and and the other guys kind of picked on him because I think they were – kind of uh, intimidated by him as a younger guy and he's out already and this this one older guy and like I was kind of pushing that this younger guy could, should kind of be you know they could all be equal you'll have three or four guys and every week another guy will do it and they'll have a rotation and then one guy is not the chief over everybody else and when we started doing that half the guys left because they're like no this he's the real He's the real, you know. So it's, it sounds like it's only in prison that that the Native American population is growing. Outside of prison, they're being decimated. But in prison, you have what I'm going to just use the old expression: you have white people claiming to be parts of tribes, right? They 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 really aren't. And this fellow that you're talking about, the long, white bearded, robed guy who who did the dance, uh, he really wasn't at all from from from. Uh, a Native American, and he, 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 along with a bunch of other people, became Native American. They became Indians, so to speak, in he, prison. He, claim, he claims that his mother was. I don't know if it's true or not. You know, we have we have Indians with Irish names and even one kind of Jewish-sounding name. It almost seems like a, a Mel Brooks skit, but it was, uh, it, it, you know, we, we treat them all, you know, we can't question them, just like we can't question people who claim they're Jewish when we know that they're not. And if they ask for a Pesach Seder, we still have to give it to them. So it's the same thing. In the other prison systems, it's not like that. In the federal system, you have to prove that you're Native American or you can't have a, a, a bald eagle feather or something like that. And what happened when you finally did get the, uh, the real um, chief? The real shaman come. Um, how did what happened? Was there a unmasking of this fellow? Yes and no, because the chief was trying to still show him respect as an elder. You know, the the fellow was probably twenty, thirty years older than the chief, so he did show him respect and that he had been running the show here for quite some time. But to try to balance that dichotomy of saying, well. The chief is the chief. You're not the chief. You're not, you know, you, if the chief delegates some, something for you to do, that's fine, but you can't do it on your own. And the guy, on one hand, he was thankful. He was happy. Oh, we have the chief finally after all these years. But then sometimes he would criticize the chief. He would say, oh, this guy's new age. And I was like, he, he, this probably your old chief was new age. Cause I saw pictures. The old chief also looked like the white guy, you know, his chief that he learned from, he looked like the real deal. He looked like the Indian who was crying, you know, with the garbage in the in the cartoon in the commercial from the seventies. But uh, the the guy who was before him, who I don't think served the prison, but served their tribe. But then uh, our chief, you know, he's a real Native American. He's from the same tradition, just a slightly different. They're all Lenape tribes, but there's different branches of the Lenape people, including the Muncie tribe and the. Uh, all these different tribes. And this one, he was from the Turtle Clan, and I guess the other chief was from another clan. And so they did things slightly different, but our chief does everything in the Lenape language. He learned the language, he knows the language, whereas I don't think the other chief really knew the Lenape language. So that's, so I he think, was a pseudo, ours is he more was, authentic. He was a pseudo-chief, but 
it sounds like that that you feel that although he was put into prison probably for something pretty severe right i mean he was yeah. he was in there for something pretty severe can, can i can i assume it was he was a sex offender is that the, is that why he was there yeah 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 and and not and, only that but he was a retired police officer so that was uh wow it was uh, and he was still don't, collecting a pension <laughs> and and was don't tell me he was a he was also a boy scout leader too yeah wow <laughs> the trifecta so basically yeah. he a boy scout leader with and you know and 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 now you can you can understand i think why he took on this mantle right he obviously felt terrible being exposed now he adapted and, and what about his Hasidim? were that you said they weren't really native americans either right the ones who all who adapted as far as on you know it's i i don't look into their yichas but the, as far as i know maybe and i think he himself he claims that his i think maybe his mother was or his father right. was but but but, it's, wrong. but it's and, and, and they were were they all in the same were they also sex offenders these other these other uh People as far don't... as I know, I think all but uh, the ones, certainly the ones that really uh, so the whole latched on to him. But mo- for the most part, that whole tribe is pretty much that whole minion, that whole minion of the Lenape ever. They're all basically uh, convicted sex offenders. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that they've turned to that religion. In other words, clearly, you know, they clearly became more from in prison. Do you think there's something about there's there's something about the uh, the Lenape or the, the the whole Native American culture that that is more accepting of somebody who has that mark on his in his life. Well, it's it, not as a, as an offender. That's not that there is accepting of offenders, and it's not a particularly. Even though our chief is Lenape and the previous one was, we officially say that this is a the the I think the. Uh, acronym is scout it's the sacred circle of united tribes and we have different inmates from different tribes who identify with different tribes we'll have uh, quite a few african-americans who are of the cherokee tribe because the cherokee people enslaved uh, slaves you know before the civil war and when they were emancipated they were given citizenship in in the Cherokee tribe. So you have quite a few African-American Cherokees who are not by blood, but by they are recognized as part of the Cherokee nation. We have a few guys like that. But in general, the Native American, one thing is that I I kind of think, you know, it's it's not so nice to say, but it's something that I've been told to keep an eye on to make sure it doesn't happen, is that they it's kind of a way for them to meet each other and and have uh, love in to use a seventies term, a sixties term. They have a love in together. They were able. Yeah. They're, a, they're able to. You know, they're able to have a powwow um, in a yeah, way. I mean, that's why we got to keep an eye on them and make sure you know they're not doing anything on our watch. You know, and we try to avoid that, but it's uh, it, it's an it, expression. It, it's an expression of emotion and feeling, and I guess perverted spirituality, but spirituality nonetheless. So, so you said that you goes along like like the rabbi was asking. It does go along with the Native American spirituality, not in a criminal sense. Crime is, you know, definitely taboo, but uh, they are more accepting of other expressions uh, of sexuality than than our abrahamic traditions are they do have an idea of the the two spirit and even in certain tribes they're seen as a certain type of priesthood or a certain 
certain uh, ceremonies can only be done, performed by a two-spirit is the term that I guess has become popular even even outside of the uh, the Native American tradition. I know Vincent Price's daughter, who, who I know personally, met a few times, she she identifies as a, as a two-spirit. An ordained minister and identifies as a two-spirit. Uh, so. so basically, it's like it's like covering uh, to use the Kabbalistic terminology. So, so, so it's almost like your are So 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 just tell me, you know, since he seems to be our this old fellow who acted as the pseudo-priest, um, he died in prison, huh? He died as, as a prisoner. Yeah, and he only had maybe eight months left till he maxed out. So it was really, you know, he was really looking forward to getting out. And he got sick all of a sudden. I, you know, I saw the, I saw his change. I visited him in the hospital a few days before he died. I had the chief visit him also in the hospital. And it was sad to see this guy. He was healthy and strong, but he smoked a lot. And he probably had some sort of a cancer is what it appears, but the, fascinating thing with that is you know when he died he he had a pension from a city in upstate new york where he's a police officer he had quite a lot of money particularly for an inmate and when he died i was trying to find his children who were all estranged from him and here this guy who created this whole persona and was very much revered and and uh you know by the uh by the other inmates and and they looked up to him and kind of reviled by the staff because of how many lawsuits he made against the Commonwealth in general and all kinds of things he'd been in when people try to help him and give him what he needs. And then he goes and sues because he doesn't get exactly what he's asking for. But uh, when he died, you know, and he had quite a bit of money, which I think probably should have gone to the state to pay for, you know, the 20 years that he sat in prison but we were trying to find his children so we could at least let them know. And uh, I had to do some internet sleuthing. And finally, you know, it took a few days of a lot of hard work. And finally I was able to find one of his sons who didn't even know. He knew that his half brothers existed, but didn't know. And as far as I know, this guy didn't identify with the native American tradition. He wasn't really that interested in, collecting his his father's ashes or having any kind of funeral and i don't think uh, he even cared too much to get the money which was a nice amount of money a uh, little yerusha that he could have so uh, maybe so, in the end he did so this fellow was estranged from his family and yet in prison the sex offender that he was and everything he was somehow able and we talked about you know um, exerting influence and, and 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 your attempts to to squash that, but somehow he was able to exert probably some sort of positive influence, not just gain some respect as the chief, but he was also able to inject some sort of sense of uh, spirituality into this into this crafted situation. It's almost like you know, it's uh, as unreal as it was, as unreal as the whole situation, and on, on so many levels, there was actual emotional um, uh, satisfaction and conviction and maybe even some uplifting betterment that he died a better person than when he went in. 
And that, and, and, and it could be, it's because of all the things that you guys were able to do. So, so Yitzchak, I know, I, I'd, like I know to, I'd like to think that, you know, that that's what, I know you're, you're a dog person, right, Rabbi? You have, you have, I have my here. dog. Yes. I have a dog. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm allergic. I went to my mother's house yesterday and I killed me my allergies, but, uh, cause my mom's a dog, but he, he told one story, this inmate, you know, I would sit and listen to the stories he told. And he said that there was a fellow who was walking with his dog and he comes to this certain place and he says, what is this place? He said, well, this is heaven. He said, well, can I come in? He said, well, you could come in, but no dogs allowed. So, uh, so he said, well, no, thanks. And he kept walking and he comes to another place an oasis something and he asked he said what is this place well this is heaven he said well the guy down the road he told me that's heaven he says no no that's hell he said so why did he say it's heaven what's this whole story he said well we kind of appreciate what he does because he makes sure that that we don't let in anybody who would abandon their best friend Uh (laughs) so I remember I told my dad that story. He liked that. Uh, he should rest in peace. So. Yes, well, definitely. You know, th- this story of this fellow, clearly, you know, his, he could have sold his, his, the rights to his life uh, for some sort of uh, uh, to be made into something on, on the silver screen. And I know, Yitzchok, that uh, despite your protestations last week about what you don't know, I know that your mind is not only filled with, with this, these anecdotes, but I'm sure there's a film that springs to mind that is relevant to this idea of, of sort of being a different person than maybe where what you really are and assuming that sort of persona, especially in a prison setting or people who are from a prison setting. So what, what film is it that this story suggests to you that maybe you could even recommend to our, uh, the thousands of listeners that we hope to have? Well, there's a wonderful film that I came across a few years ago uh, with Peter Sellers and it, and it briefly touches on this, and I think, but I, it's, I think it's a good segue to just a really great and underappreciated film called Heavens Above. And I'm I'm not usually a fan of good movies. I'm kind of a fan of the bad movies. That one of my friends said that they're not bad movies; they're just misunderstood. But this one's really good. <laughs> one that's a little take uh, on that's a little take on uh, the song from West Side Story, Officer Grump, yeah. right? Yeah. I think that's so, where, I think that's what you're throwing at me, uh, yeah. Stephen Sondheim. But go ahead, right? Yeah. Or is, uh, yeah, but this ahead. movie is really, really a, a very good movie, Peter. It's I think from 1963, if I'm not mistaken, sometime in the early 60s, black and white movie called Heavens Above, where Peter Sellers plays an Anglican priest, and by accident he's appointed to be a priest of a parish of a small town that's pretty much run by a pharmaceutical company. Uh, the one family that owns the pharmaceutical company pretty much employs the whole town. And he was by accident. I don't remember right offhand the name that he had in the movie, but when the archdeacon of the diocese there was appointing who should appoint the new priest when the priest there died, he gave the name. He's about to go on vacation and they see, the, and when the secretary goes to the file cabinet, she sees the name that he said, and then, uh, but with a, a a middle name, and he says, "Oh, this must be it." And she didn't realize that there were two priests with the same name; just one had a, another middle initial. So they send for Peter Sellers, who was the wrong priest, and he was actually a prison chaplain. 
and here's his new position. He's no longer appointed in the prison, but instead he's going to be the parish priest for this town. And the warden is so happy that they're getting rid of this chaplain because here he is, you know, preaching to his little black sheep in his flock, you know, telling them, judge not lest ye be judged. And what kind of thing is that to tell a prisoner? So meanwhile, uh, the, the warden's looking out the window, seeing Peter Sellers leave with his hat over his eyes. And then he's looked at him and he's about to get in the car to leave. And he realizes it's not him, but it's one of the inmates who, stole his clothes and then they go back to the inmates uh, cell and find Peter Sellers all, you know, in his <laughs> underwear tied up. And then they, they get his clothes back on him and they send him off on his way. And from there, he really does a number on this town because he really, he takes things really seriously. He's uh, very obviously, you know, lives up to the spirit of the gospel. He accept, you know, the taxi driver who brings him in is a black man and he brings him into his home and they're sitting and they're singing hymns and talking about the Bible and they're having a great time. And all the people from the town, they're looking at like, how can the priest be sitting with this taxi driver singing hymns like they're just offended and appalled by this? And he goes on to turn around the whole town. He brings a family of gypsies to live with him in the rectory there and they wind up robbing him and he goes on to uh to convince this very wealthy woman to give away free food and everything and it winds up creating a big you know uh problem in the town and he he tells the the other and then the real priest winds up coming in who's supposed to take this position and there's a whole fight and he says no i'm convinced this is where god wants me and he tell and they say to the to this, uh, he said, "Why, do you, why does this rich woman have to give away free food to the people? We have a, a welfare state here in England; the government can take care of them." And he said, "I'm not concerned about the poor people; they're going to be taken care of. I'm concerned about the rich woman. How could she get into heaven? Because it says in the gospel that it's harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich person to get into heaven." And so then the the archdeacon says, well, there are different ways to interpret that. He, he didn't, he didn't want to accept that, but he was really, con, you know, he really wanted to help people. But in the end, like everything fell apart. And it's I, 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 I don't want to interrupt you because it is, it sounds like a great movie. And I think you might be giving away some spoilers there for anybody yeah. who wants to see it. However, I would say from the brief, the brief amount of time that I've known you, he's, it sounds like you see a little bit of yourself. In that story, here's somebody who is who's changing the world, who's going out there, who's, who's who has um, challenges in front of him, and as a person who of religion can make a difference. And again, the fact that he started in a prison maybe uh, indicates uh, some wish fulfillment fantasy for yourself, you know. But when you're talking there about uh, a prisoner, uh, I'll just say two points from my Bikias movies. The first one is. Peter Sellers himself, I think in 1965, made a film called The Fox, where he escapes prison in the same way. And uh, it, that might be worth uh, watching, uh, where he actually is, a, is, is an escaped convict who escapes prison that way. And another film, which I know you're familiar with, because I know you know everything that's free on YouTube, which is, of course, Chaplin's 1923 uh, classic, The Pilgrim, where uh, he is a... He called it a Western chaplain because in a way it's sort of most of the action happens in Texas 
Uh, and again, you know, based on the sets that they had over there, but that does have sort of a cowboy type of sheriff who is a sort of a, um, uh, you know, an important figure, but it's, but really what it's mostly about is about, it's about America in a way, it's a, but it's mo, but the basic plot is about a prisoner who escapes. Uh, we don't know what he's done, how terrible he's been. And the way he escapes is by, uh, taking the clothes of a, uh, of a minister and then going to a train station and then just getting on a train and ending up in Texas where as plot devices always have it, it turns out they're waiting for uh, uh, a minister to arrive. And he says that he is that minister and he begins to actually uh, chaplain who, uh, and it's all of course in silence, a silent film of course, and chaplain is able to assume that role, although he has totally no training and it seems like assuming that role made a big difference for him because, as you know, the, the great drama of the film is is that he ends up getting back the money uh, that was stolen by one of his, again, one of these incredible coincidences. Someone who happens to have been with him in prison is also in this, in this gulch, whatever it's called, Desert Gulch, Texas. And that's somebody who knows him from the, from the stir. And of course, he's able to, uh, to get the money back that this guy stole. And he's able to redeem himself by assuming the mantle of a religious person, right? Um, I, I, I said, right? And I think we were once talking about this movie once, and you were telling me that, that you, I think you used the, uh, the, um, the famous scene where Chaplin acts out the, uh, the story of David and Goliath, right? You, I think you said you've used it. Uh, in, in, in at the prisons yourself, right? Oh, it's a, that's a phenomenal scene there because he to to give over a sermon and pantomime like that, it's really it's really something to behold. It, I know a lot of the inmates uh, hold that film you know special in their hearts. One one of our more observant Jewish inmates likes to talk about that movie whenever we have a chance to but what's, reminisce but, about what, it. What's interesting though is, and again, I just building on what you're saying. Chaplin was not a person of, of faith or religion. In fact, he knew very little about religion until he put on the robes. And the st- only story that he knew was David and Goliath, which, of course, in a way was his story, which was the story of the tramp, the story of the little person, the person that can make it, the person who has everything against him. And, and, and that's why that story stirred for him. And I think that's part of the reason why it stirs for others that the it's possibly to be the most downtrodden with so many odds against you. So I think those are, so that we have a couple of films there, heavens above and the, the, the pilgrim. Um, I, I would, I would also just throw in since we've been talking about it, um, um, two other films. And of course, one is, a, is, is uh, from the early sixties, 1962, I believe, uh, uh, Burt Lancaster's uh, The Birdman of Alcatraz. I think I, he's the actor who uh, uh, who plays Leonard Stroud, who, of course, uh, in a way, sort of changed his life and became uh, a, a different person in prison. And I would also recommend, if you're into that themes that we've been discussing, um, uh, Milos Forman's uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo Nest, one f- based on the novel by Ken Kesey, which, of course, one of the, uh, besides McMurphy, played by Jack Nicholson, there is an Indian chief, uh, an yeah. actual, um, I think it was Chief Dan George, who actually um, 
was the actor who was actually a real uh, American Indian, a Native American, who plays the uh, the person who's who's who actually becomes liberated uh, in prison. He just didn't have anything to say, right? Well, he acted like he was a mute, but really, yeah, yeah uh, juicy he fruit. <laughs> he says juicy fruit is the first thing he says when McMurphy yeah. gives him some some gum. But getting out of movies, I know that uh, we want to wind this up with some moral that we can probably take from from all of this play acting, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a uh, it's something that we deal with in life all the time. You know, there's a famous story that I heard. In yeshiva, I, I know I heard it in Lander College more than once, and maybe even Or Sameach, they told us the story. It's funny how there, there's stories of the Satmarov that you hear them in Litvish yeshivas a little different than you hear them when you're in Williamsburg or in Curiosio, but uh, there's one story was on Purim. One of the Hasidim came to Satmarov and asked if he could imitate uh, the Rebbe, and uh, he gave him Rishus to do so, and he came out with the uh, a kittel and a machzer, and he was going to dive in the ila with all the Satmarov's mannerisms, and Satmarov started crying when he heard it, and they, and they were kind of scared, you know, did I do something to offend you? And he said, no, no, I, I sometimes feel like I'm just imitating myself, you know, and it, it, in a certain sense, you know, that's a, it's maybe what we all do in life, but maybe maybe just like we said with this guy, who uh, in the prison, if if he got something out of it spiritually that as troubled and problematic as he was, that maybe he was he came out a little bit better than he got in there. You know, the same thing. If we we're just imitations of something good, but at least in Zidin, you know, we have good people to imitate. I I know one of a Hasidic Rebbe who I'm friendly with and I was a, a Hosbucher and a Gaba for a few times over the years and I was very close with him and his family. His, he, he got the Rebbe Vista from his schwer, but I knew his parents. His mother was a, a Rebbe Sheinikel, was a Tzanzer and I knew his father and his mother. His father passed away about two years ago. His mother passed away last month. And I called the Rebbe yesterday after Shiva. I called him, you know, to be Menachem because I couldn't get him on the phone during the Shiva. And I told him, I said, you know, Rebbe, I'm such a, an imitator of you know, for knowing his parents, you know, Holocaust survivors from before the war, real authentic people, impressive people, uh, real Hasidic. And I, I, I have who to, to imitate. And, you know, hopefully I can, I can get a little bit of that. But I, I, one of my Rebbeim from high school is Ramosha Weinberger. And I, recently heard a, a interview that someone made with him and he was talking about his own youth, something that I never heard him open up about before. And he said how he had a shtibel down the block in Queens where he would daven and the, the rebel there from the shtibel once said, you know, Chaim Moshe, you know, you, you're trying to imitate me. You're trying to, be, he's like, I'm not even like me. You know, you want to be like me. I'm not even like me. So, you know, as much as we're not like what we want to be, we try to be our, ourselves but also we try to be better if we can and sometimes and we, sometimes and, and, we fail doing that and sometimes we grow doing that and may, we maybe find the balance in the dichotomy yes and i i second that and of course we have to hold the best parts of what we do uh so many times it's only the memory of when we were great and when we did something noble that keeps us that way 
And that's the type of thing that allows the mitzvah gerer is mitzvah. You know, we're able to to remember the things that we've done and and hopefully, but be true and recognize in a mustard sort of way yeah. what we really are about. So Yitzchak, I think we've... Uh, Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.